So welcome back to O Adwar Art Thou. We've had a little bit of a, a hiatus. I think that's because both of us have been pretty busy in our, you know, paying jobs. <laughs> so, but, you know, the, a, a good thing about the time off is it definitely gives us some time to think about what we want to do for the next episode. And obviously new events uh, come up in the world that give us um, new things to talk about. But today... You know, this is something that's been going on for a few months anyway, and it's something that I think is really important to talk about because it's going to, I think, really determine the future of of the of Ukraine specifically. And, you know, that's the topic of land reform. Uh, so, you know, believe it or not, Ukraine is one of the very few countries in the world uh, where it is actually against the law or, or citizens are banned. Maybe that's a better way to put it from selling agricultural land. Uh, and, you know, we'll sort of get into how that ban came into place and, and what that means. Um, but that they call it a moratorium on land sales. So there is a moratorium and Zelensky and his party have been talking about lifting the moratorium. So essentially allowing um, the smallholders who owned agricultural land to sell it. And there is a lot of fear in Ukraine about what that means. Right. There are some people that are there's certain aspects of society that are afraid that what's going to happen is you're going to have large agricultural uh, you know, conglomerates um, from Russia, from the United States, from Western Europe that come in and snatch all this agricultural land. And the smallholders will be left with nothing. Um, Ukrainian producers will be left behind and won't be able to compete. Uh, so, you know, that's a fear. Um, on the other side, the, the people who are more pro, I think, lifting the moratorium, you know, it's this idea of, well, A, like the IMF wants it. So, oh, yeah, I guess you're always kind of skeptical <laughs> when that happens. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the, the other argument, right, and, and this comes down to, you know, something that you hear about in the United States all the time, and, in, and especially in Western Europe, it's this idea of, like, the free disposition of one's property, mm -hmm. right? Like, if I own it, I should be able to, you know, within limits, do what I want with it. Um, so there's that sort of fundamental human right aspect of it. And I think, actually, the European Court of Human Rights has said the moratorium is, like, violates, I don't know, whatever the European Courts of Rights yeah. has, like, jurisdiction over. But, you know, they've said that <laughs> Uh, the moratorium should be struck down because it doesn't allow landowners to sell their property. Uh, and then, you know, the second thing about it is, you know, if you want to encourage um, investment and you want to encourage farmers to produce more crops mm -hmm. or improve their operation, improve their yields, um, they're probably going to need money to do that. And the thing in Ukraine right now is most people's asset, their land, you know, which they own, you know, so that's that's something that they have. But if they if you can't sell it, then if you go to try and get a loan, a bank's probably not going to loan you any money or really anyone like your neighbor is not going to loan you any money. Right. Um, right. If you can't, you know, take the land and sell it. Now, right. that's not to say that sales don't happen. I mean, my understanding is that, you know, like these long term leases are signed and like there are ways around the moratorium. Mm -hmm. But the the big thing, I think, is, you know, scaring off investment. And, and that's right, like scaring off banks and, and credit unions or whoever you would be getting money lent from. So that's sort of the backdrop of all of this. 
And so now, I guess the question is, well, how did we get to this point? Yeah, I was just going to say, like, why? Why is this a thing? How did Ukraine get into a situation where um, there's a lot of land that's owned by um, a lot of individuals, actually, but they can't sell it? And so, Mm -hmm. you know, we talked about in one of the episodes about Russia and shock therapy, this idea of, you know, how Russia rapidly privatized its industry was they went to the workers in the factories and said, you know, here's some stock certificates. Guess what? Like you're now an owner in this factory or this, you know, whatever this enterprise is. Um, And guess what? Like we're privatized now so we can get our IMF loans. And but what happened, right, was in that situation where no one had any money uh, and food and other basic necessities were hard to come by. People sold their shares in exchange for, you know, basic necessities for way less than they were worth. So by the time sort of everyone realized what was happening, um, you had a very select group of people, you know, usually, um, you know, people who had connections to the, you know, sort of with the, you know, fragmenting, dying Soviet state, but like people who had connections to power, let's put it that way. Yeah snatched up all of these shares and that's how you got the oligarch class right now that happened in ukraine too with with factories with other sorts of of enterprises but um and i think for a little while too one they did the same thing with collective farms right they went to the individual farmers who worked in a collective farm and i guess i should probably pause too and explain what a collective farm is <laughs> so you know the the big the, these were created under stalin um, there were sort of two kinds of farms. There was the um, sort of state farm. I think it was called like a sovkhoz. Um, and that was um, basically like a state-owned enterprise, right? Like the state owned the land and you worked on the land in exchange for a payment. Sometimes a share of the crop, sometimes uh, an actual salary. But like the state owned the land and basically you work for the state if you farmed it. And then there were collective farms, which basically were also owned by the state. But the idea was was that you, as a like private landowner, right, you would give up your land, you would give up your implements to the collective, right? And in exchange, right. you would farm for the collective and you would receive a portion of the um, of the crop or again, a monetary payment, you know, whatever. Uh, you would do that. And that and you would give the rest of it up like the state would take the elective. So it was, you know, it's really in many ways they were sort of the same thing. But, you know, the collective farm was how the Soviet state went about taking private agricultural land and turning it into these huge state owned enterprises. So, you know, these were created in the 30s under Stalin. They lasted with, you know, some reforms uh, throughout the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. So you had a almost an entire generation of farmers who never had really owned their own land. I mean, everyone sort of got like a backyard plot, like you got to own a little plot of land around your house to grow your own stuff because mm-hmm. they pretty soon realized that that was the only way that these people were going to survive. Um, but, you know, you, you didn't have sort of individual farming class that like Jefferson talks about. Um, or, you know, really any Western society talks about as like the backbone of the of a democracy. And so the question was, well, how are we going to create it? And it was very much the same thing to the factories. We'll, you know, divide the collective farm up among those 
farm it. So they'll get a couple acres or of land, and it, and that's how we'll privatize these collective farms. So you know that happened in Ukraine, and then I think there were you know already there were some fears about the land being gobbled up by a select few. Um, and they and I think that they kind of realized that they may they might be going too fast on this. So I want to say like in the late 90s, like 97, 98, 99, something like that, they decided to put this moratorium in place. So the land had been privatized, like it's owned by individuals, but the state put in place a ban on transfers, like sales. So and that ban was only supposed to last, I think, a year or two until they could figure out a more rational approach to you know, allowing people who wanted to sell to sell and, you know, work out maybe some rules about who could buy and who could not. But they really never figured it out. And they just kept extending the moratorium again and again and again and again. And I think it's still in place. And so now Zelensky's party is talking about, you know, removing it. And, you know, there's certainly arguments for it, right? I mean, there's what we talked about, which is um, the human rights portion of it like if it's my property like i should be able to you know dispose of it as i see fit i mean there's there's that part of it uh there's also um that this could really boost ukraine's economy so um i mean give you a sense of like how important agricultural land is like a lot of ukraine is like the black earth zone have you have you heard of that concept andrew i have not i have not so so it's it's this section in parts it's like parts of Russia, um, a lot of Ukraine. I mean, the soil is like literally black, and it's full of nutrients. Is so, it just I mean, like it's, like really okay? So like really dark topsoil, kind of like yeah. like silty topsoil type, stuff? like extremely nutrient rich okay. topsoil, and which basically means that you know you can you can produce very um, high yields without you know using a lot of fertilizer like things like that and so i think you 40 percent i think of the world's black earth is in ukraine mm -hmm. and ukraine you know by itself is one of the largest exporters of grain i want to say like it's an eighth place in the entire world um okay. you know a country that's i don't know if ukraine was a state what, what to compare it to i mean it's certainly smaller than texas I mean, maybe a state like the size, maybe a little bit bigger than, maybe about the size of Montana. I was just going to say, is Montana a, a I think Montana might be a comparison. Okay. Right. So like an area the size of Montana, the eighth largest grain exporter in the world. Uh, they grow a lot of sunflowers there. Uh, so like all sorts of like seed oils and things mm -hmm. like that, they're big exporters of. Um, you know, really like that's how Ukraine got its reputation as the, you know, the breadbasket of Europe. Uh, and if you look at Ukraine's flag, it's it's blue on top of yellow. You know, blue is supposed to be the blue sky and the yellow is supposed to be, you know, like the never ending fields of, of grain. OK, yeah, that makes so this is, you know, this is like immensely important in Ukraine. And it's like a, it's a very huge part of that country's identity. Right. Because, you know, they've always had sort of bountiful, um, bountiful harvests. They've always had fertile agricultural land, and that's obviously made them a target for, you know, lots of outside uh, invaders. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I don't think that we need to go all the way back through history, but like suffice it to say, like a lot of those barbarian tribes that come in and attack Rome, right, like um, Attila the Hun, I mean, a lot of them are sweeping through 
Ukraine, right? And a lot right. of other powers are looking at Ukraine. Like um, I want to, I think you know, like the Greeks had colonies on on Crimea. Um, all people have always sort of had their eye on this region and its extremely fertile soil. But you know, I don't think we need to get too in depth in that. But I mean, the the what's really I think burned into people's psyches right is uh is world war one to some extent and, and especially world war two so mm-hmm. oh and and collectivization but we can kind of start with those things so you know in world war one right you had the germans take large portions of ukraine uh same you know with this idea of well this is a place where we can extract agricultural resources you know this is a place that's very vital for us to have um Obviously, that doesn't, you know, that leaves an impression on a lot of Ukrainians. Uh, but, you know, that period ends. You have the this, the Russian Revolution. You have Ukraine come into the structure of the Soviet Union. And, you know, the first thing that you have, um, or I shouldn't say the first thing, but, I mean, a major area that you have is collectivization. And so we've already sort of talked about that with the with what a collective farm is. You know, you have the state basically saying, hey, wouldn't it be fantastic if you, you know, gave us all of your property, like your, you know, your land and your equipment, and in exchange, you got to work for the collective. (laughs) And, you know, obviously, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't work out very well uh, for peasants, right? I mean, they're displaced from their land, uh, they lose what little autonomy they had, and there's widespread famine, right, especially in Ukraine. Uh, In in Ukraine, it's... um, well, I'm going to mispronounce it, but like in Russian, it's the it's the whole of the more right, like the great yeah. famine. And, and if you and this is a debate that rages between Ukrainians and Russians, you know, to this day. And it's the idea of, you know, was the famine a genocide against Ukrainians? That's the Ukrainian perspective, right? Like this was done deliberately by Stalin because the Ukrainian peasantry was especially difficult to bring to heel and as a way to punish them. Right. You you withhold food Mm -hmm. from those areas deliberately and allow them to starve off. That's the Ukrainian perspective. You know, the Russian perspective is, well, everywhere got collectivized. You know, peasants died everywhere. You know, it it just happened to be worse in Ukraine, but it wasn't a deliberate, you know, attempt at exterminating them. And I mean, I I believe now, like the, the scholarly consensus is that, you know, it was a genocide. And if we look at a lot of the records, you know, maybe initially they might not have intended for that, but once they saw what was happening, right, right, they realized the there, political opportunities and they, that were they there. They just kind of were like, okay, this is fine. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so, you know, millions of Ukrainians starved to death in a land that we just talked about, right, has some of the most bountiful soil in all of the world, right? And people mm-hmm. literally starved to death. And... So, you know, the if you if you're a Ukrainian, you're thinking, well, that's because our land was taken from us. Right. Like we were displaced from the land and the result was a famine. And, you know, things obviously grew worse um, in during World War Two. Right. Because, you know, we the there's that German, the Nazi concept of like Lebensraum. Right. Like living space. Living room. That living space was Ukraine. You know, there were all of these sort of like Nazi visions of, you know, we're going to wipe out the local Slavic population in this case, like Poles, Ukrainians, Russians. We're going to wipe them out or we're going to leave some to be, you know, basically agriculture workers and nothing else. 
and we're going to turn Ukraine into this vast sort of agricultural colony, more or less, for the benefit of, you know, the Third Reich. And so, again, you had Ukrainian, um, you know, farmers, peasants displaced from their land, suffered a great deal, while mm -hmm. somebody else, some other, you know, race or country, whatever you want to, you know, however you want to define this, is taking the, agro the agricultural product away from them. And so this, I think, is very much instilled in people's minds that if land reform is allowed to happen, if the moratorium is lifted, what's going to happen is that Russian, large Russian concerns or, you know, Western Europe, like EU concerns or American, con like agricultural concerns are going to be able to come in, take the land and, you know, do it in a way that that's almost like, um, I don't want to say worse, but, you know, do it do it in a way that it can, on some level can be like difficult to displace. Right. Mm -hmm. Because like with um, like with the Nazis anyway, like you, you know, you push them out. Right. Like, you know that they're illegitimate and you push them right. out. If you're the Ukrainian peasant and you have Soviet power in your village, right, you have the collective farmer, you have the state farm, you know, that's illegitimate as well. But. What do you do when your own government has sort of sanctioned these sales and sort of clouds this this new occupant of your land with, you know, that very sort of like, I think, sinister in, in this sense, like idea of like title, right, of like title to this land? Like, how do you displace somebody like that? Uh, and, and I, you know, I don't think that's a very or that that's an illegitimate fear because um, and we're going to diverge just a little bit here. Because one of the visions, I think, of, of – and we've mentioned this before – but of America, American society, of European society, of, of so many different societies was this idea of the sort of individual agricultural producer. And in many ways, like that is an idea or like that is an individual that is disappearing and is – you know, on, and I think leading many people to think is no longer viable. Well, right. I mean, like you have the whole Jeffersonian idea of the yeoman farmer, right, as the ideal American society, which we know that didn't turn out. <laughs> no, I mean, it didn't turn out like that. But I mean, like, what you know, what's the idea? You know, the idea mm -hmm. is that, oh, like he has his own plot of land. And so therefore he's going to be invested or he's going to be, you know, vested in its success. And, you know, he's going to be more willing to support a government that, um that protects his his right to that land. And I, I don't think that there's, you know, necessarily I don't necessarily think that's a wrong conclusion to reach. Right. Right. Uh, but, you know, if we look at what's happened in the United States with the rise of like corporate farming and the displacement of so many individuals from that way of life, mm -hmm. I mean, I do think that it, it on some level like leads you susceptible to um, I mean, I think like I guess I'll just jump to the point. Like, I think there's a reason why Trump uh, or at least brand of politics is popular in rural areas, because, I mean, in many ways, like what's the anger coming from? I mean, the anger, some of it anyway, I think is coming from the fact that people have been displaced from the land. It's just it's been uh, in America anyway, like you don't have the government showing up with. You know, you don't have soldiers showing up with guns saying, like, you're going to give us your farm implements and you're going to give us your cows. And if you don't like it, then, you know, have fun mining for gold in Siberia.
Siberia above the Arctic Circle, right? Like that's not necessarily happening, but it's it's a much more sinister way, right? Like you know, well, at least not, not the white to... people. What? At least not the white people in the United States. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, I mean, it, yeah. Sorry. I mean, obviously, there's, kind of, you know, there's all of that. Um, I guess I was thinking more in in recent history, right? Um, but you know, you you like your neighbor can't you know can't keep up or whatever, and and has to sell and sells to some large concern. Yeah, it's uh, it's the and, it's like the um, Steinbeckian grapes of wrath, right? Like that. It's just it, it just is impossible to. You know, the you're drawing blood from the proverbial stone on the land. Yeah, well, you know, and like and you're, you're, all you're the country exactly. songs about it, right? Like it's a it's a very common trope in the United yeah, no, States. I, I mean, I think on some level, like it's true because you know when you have these large like corporate farms and corporate like slaughterhouses, right? Like I mean, you know, like in Iowa, you have these huge mm-hmm. hog farms and chicken farms, right? I mean, were there like it, it just has to be disgusting to be inside of one of those things with all the livestock that's in there and all the waste that comes yeah. out of them. I mean, my my point is is like the local people there, like they might work there, but they don't own the land, right? right? They don't own the enterprise. So like, how what are they vested in? I mean, they're not really vested in anything. And then if you want to, I think look at the decline of the rural way of life. Well, if all you have are a bunch of people earning a wage, you know, they're not going to be buying farm equipment like they're not going to be uh, going to the bank and being like, you know, hey, I got, you know, I had a good year this year. I have some extra to save up or, you know, or or I guess probably more likely like they're not going to be going to the bank for a loan for their farm or anything like that. And all that capital, right, all that um, stuff that's produced locally is just being shipped out. Mm-hmm. It's being shipped out to places like New York or it's being shipped out to places like Chicago or, you know, look at uh, like JBS Swift. Right. I think one of the largest meat packers in the country is a Brazilian corporation. Right. Right. And they have facilities all over the country. Well, where's most of the profit going? Like it's not staying in these communities. Like I, I can promise you that it's going out to these other places. And so, you know, what are they left with except you know, I guess a misplaced sense of like, or a misguided in the sense that I don't know where they sometimes know where to place it, like sense of rage. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is the, that's the alienation that, you know, Marx talks about. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, for those of you who, who maybe aren't that sure what we're talking about, you know, Marx talks about how what sort of, what, well, I mean, there's many things that distinguish the proletariat from other classes, but you know, one of them is the fact that they're alienated from the um, from their labor product, right? right? So, like, if I if I'm a cobbler and I have the skill set necessary to make a set of shoes, right? Like, I make the shoes from start to finish. I know how to do every step of the process. Like, I I have like a valuable skill. Right. Like that I can that I can, you know, barter with people with or, you know, make money from. But if all I do is work in a factory and I pound the nails into the sole of the shoe or whatever, you know, I, I um, pull a lever and, and stamp a piece of metal, like pick whatever menial fact, you know, task you have. Um, all of a mm-hmm. sudden now I don't have a skill set. Right. Like I've been alienated from the finished product, which is the shoe or the, you know, whatever in the agricultural context. uh, If I'm a farmer, I know how to 
you know, plow my field, plant my crop, water it, watch out for it, you know, keep the pests away from it. Mm -hmm. uh, I know how to harvest it. I know how to sell it. You know, I'm, I'm there every step of the process. Whereas if I'm just an agricultural worker or like I work in a slaughterhouse, you know, name any sort of profession like that, I don't have the skill set to go out on my own. So now I'm dependent on, um, you know, the, the capitalist, right? The right. factory owner, the farm owner. I'm dependent on him to give me a source of, of income. And that is sort of the exact opposite of what we talked about with that Jeffersonian you know, style farmer. Right. And this is, this is um, kind of going back to our conversation we had a couple episodes ago about Taylorism. And then, of course, the, the upshot of this is, like, it makes everyone miserable. If you're, if you're, if you're just, if you have no personal investment in what you're doing to, to earn a living, it makes you miserable. Yeah, I mean, it, it does. I mean, and, and I think that there is something to be said, too, for, you know, what we've seen happen throughout the world, which is the concentration of, you know, power of resources mm -hmm. in a very select few group of corporations. And, you know, now maybe you can say that, OK, well, you know, Amazon makes my life so much simpler, um, you know, or like it's nice to be able to go to Costco or Walmart, wherever, and and get all these things done because I live a busy life, you know, whatever you want to say. Um, but I mean, obviously, the the downside to that is you do have so many people that you know, like what's the like what's their connection to their job, right? Like if all it is is a source of income, then you know that you know that doesn't make for a very happy populace, right? And so you know this is a process that's happened in America, so. And I think and in Europe, I believe, as well. And so, you know, what's the I don't think that it's misguided for a lot of Ukrainians to say, like, well, this could happen to us. Mm -hmm. You know, this could happen to where, you know, because you have, I think, a lot of people in the villages who like, yeah, like they're sitting on a nice little asset. But what else do they have? Mm -hmm. So, of course, they're going to be tempted to sell it. And well, that's yes, uh, that's the other thing, too. Right. Like we're talking about this. And I, I think it should be important to note that, like. The, the primary way that Americans gain wealth, uh, at least up until recently, was home ownership. Right. But yeah. That is kind of that's kind of defeated if you can't transfer the home or the land. Right. Like the only thing that gives it value is your ability to transfer it. Right. Like I mean, this is to get you know back into property rights one hundred and one, like the. The value is in your exclusivity, that you are the only person that has the the legal power, legally recognized power to assign ownership of this land. Yeah, no, I mean, that that's certainly true. Um, but I mean, I think like what to I guess not really I mean, it's not really a counter arguing because I agree with you. I mean, I just think the. I mean, this is maybe a, a little divergence, too, but I mean, I, you know, you're also sort of seeing like this sort of paternalism, too, mm -hmm. that's been prevalent throughout, you know, Russian and Ukrainian history. This idea that, you know, people in the capital and far off places, you know, know what's best for them. Right. I mean, like that right. was w always one of the arguments in favor of serfdom, uh, also like in favor of slavery. 
but you know that it, it that it's like the gentry or in in America like the slave owning class like knows what's best for these people right? right and so you know if you give them if you give them freedom if you let them make their own decisions like they're just going to screw it all up right right and so or at least I don't want to like I don't want to say like I'm sound well like no I mean that is yeah that is the uh, but that um... but that's you know that's the <laughs> argument against it and so it's why we have the electoral brain, college like <laughs> what it's why we have the electoral college yeah huh um, yeah, <laughs> but but my my point yeah. my point was that like there is I think there is a little bit of an inherent tension in um, this idea that you know like you're gonna go go through through the process of breaking up these um, uh, 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 farms, these collective collective land holdings, and distributing it to the population, and then you know making removing one of the key components of value from it, right? Like I guess so. Maybe maybe this is something that you can you can answer because you said that this is that these were collectively held farms that were then broken up presumably at least to me that means that okay you had a bunch of farmers that were working on a collective piece of land and now their farmers working on um say 50 individual pieces of land themselves is that accurate is or is there or are there situations where i mean, I, I can't tell you I guess what I'm asking is, are there I mean, situations you... where they, where through this process, the land gets unused, but because they can't sell yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know I mean, what I'm I saying. Think what you see a lot of, right? And I mean, I think this is again like a, the biggest sort of fear because there was always, um, and there, there's here's going to be like a little digression, right? But like, mm -hmm. you know, the czarist state, and we might have talked about this a little bit before, but one of the sort of the last reform projects czarist state undertook were the Stilipin reforms. So they were named after the prime minister who is sort of the brainchild of this. So, you know, peasant farming was never really farming to create a surplus to sell to market, right? Like a lot right. of peasant farming is like a survival mechanism. So like, you know, the reason why you strip farm, right, instead of having one field, you have a bunch of others in other you know places is, well, if something goes wrong in your one field, like a hailstorm or, you know, whatever, at least you got something else, something else to fall back on. And so, so much of, of, um, of peasant farming is it's like a safety net, right? Like it's almost like a, a welfare system. And so... But the flip side of that is it's not it's not as productive, mm -hmm. right? It's not as productive as concentrating holdings uh, in one field, right? It's right. It, you know um, giving people ownership because that was the other thing is peasants didn't individually own the land; the commune owned it, and so the commune could take you know take land back from a family and distribute it to another family who had more children or whatever. But it was always sort of in flux. And you always got how much ever land the commune elders thought that you needed. And I mean, obviously, this is not like a perfect system. And, you know, there were certainly like, you know, it's ripe for abuse and corruption and things like that. But sort of the point was, was like everyone was supposed to have something. And so, um, you know, even if you were a peasant who lived in a village and you went away to work in a factory, if that didn't work out, well, at least you come back and you could go into the village and you could start farming again. Um, mm -hmm. so when Stilipin tries to enact his reforms, like the idea was that 
individual far like families or farmers who wanted to leave the commune could do it and the state would help them uh, or like would work with the commune to create you know individual plots of like you know concentrated like single holdings for these individual families and i mean it it had some successes i mean i think the bigger success was um having peasants migrate to siberia um where there was you know lots of land and and create an individual land holding out there but you know one of the biggest sort of resistance pieces was you know peasants thinking well, this is going to really erode our way of life, and like this is going to get rid of our safety net. And and so, from what I understand, like oh, for a lot of at least some of the individuals that have stayed in the village, I mean, you also have to understand that there's been a lot of there's been a huge exodus, and I don't know how many young people are left, but um, there are a lot of elderly people who, you know, use like they, they'll lease their land to their neighbors mm -hmm. in exchange for money or a portion of the crop and they'll keep something and that's what they'll grow their food on. Okay. Well, and yeah, so cause I, I, think... I was thinking like that too, like if I were, I am assuming that even though you can't sell this land, like it would still transfer like to your heirs, say like. It'd be impossible to yeah, inherit. Yeah, I, mean, I think that I, I I'm sure that that happens. So, um, like, I if, I to, exactly, if I were to if I were to inherit, that's the case. If I were to inherit um land from like a, a piece of agricultural land through this means, I'd have no idea what to do with it. So all I end up doing is kind of like as you described, I'd, I'd either just sit there or I'd lease it to someone that could do do something with it. Yeah, and. And so there, there's sort of another fear is like you do have some sort of an agricultural class that's arisen like of Ukrainian origin, mm -hmm. right, like in the villages. And it's these, you know, more enterprising types who, you know, they're how they're what they're able to do is they're able to lease a lot of land from their neighbors. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that is another you know area where they're sort of afraid too, where they're like, OK, well, you know, I'm able to lease the land for, you know, fairly cheap. Um, and I'm able to do well with it, or like I have a nice beneficial arrangement with my neighbors. Um, but what happens if the, you know, what happens if foreign corporations can come in and maybe my neighbors don't want to sell their land to these foreign corporations, but you know, the, they're probably going to be willing to lease it for more than I ever would. Right. And I, I mean, you know, that, you know, that's like another big fear. Uh, so, but I mean, to get back to your point, like, you know, I, I do think that there is a, a fair portion of unused land in Ukraine. I mean, I, I do think that's one of the reasons for reform. I mean, you know, certainly, like, it would be better if you could transfer, you know, like, make transfers so that, you know, you could keep it um, so people who wanted could sell and those who who didn't could, you know, do something with it. But, I mean, I think, like, the, in an ideal world and, you know, maybe eventually this is what Ukraine gets to. And, I mean, and they've talked about limiting the amount of land foreign corporations can buy up. But I mean, again, like with shell companies and, you know, things like that, I don't know how realistic of a goal that is. But, you know, the I think the idea is sort of a rebirth of the of, of cooperative farming, right? Like not like uh -huh. the Soviet style collective, but the like the cooperative farm, like what I think, in, you know, Americans know is like the co-op. Um, right. 
I mean, I, I know that I've heard, I don't know so much about like Bernie Sanders. Um, I mean, I, but I know like Elizabeth Warren talks about this, right? Like breaking mm-hmm. up the big agricultural corporations, um, returning, you know, farming to small holding or, you know, making it easier for smallholders to band together and create cooperative farms. And I, I mean, I think that on some level, like that might be, or in, in a perfect world, like that's where Ukraine gets is this right. idea of cooperative farming um, where, you know, you can lease or, you know, you can sell the land, but um, but it stays, you know, w- w- within Ukrainian hands. Um, you know, what's going to happen ultimately, you know, I don't know. But I mean, it certainly is like a momentous decision um, and not, you know, not one, I think, to be taken lightly because, you know, really, I think once you get these foreign, like if like the nightmare scenario happens and Cargill or, you know, ConAgra or, you know, I don't know, Western European farming corporations, but I'm sure they exist, you know, buy up a lot of this land. I don't know if you ever get them out. And, you know, then the question becomes, too, like what happens to rural population? You know, do they still have that safety net of their land that they can sort of always fall back on if if things really get bad? Or, you know, are they sort of the do they become the displaced, you know, rural class where there's really nothing left for them? I mean, that, you know, that I think is, is certainly like a legitimate question. And it's one that, you know, really hovers over this because. You know, what Ukraine, I think, is facing is a choice of, OK, well, do we do get a huge short term boost? Right. Like because if we really liberalize land sales and there's this huge bonanza. Um, yeah. I do think agricultural yields are going to go up. Right. I do think a lot of money is going to pour into the country. Uh, and in the short term, like that will really benefit them. I, 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 mm-hmm. I have no doubts that it, that it won't. Um, but what's the cost? Right. Well, I mean, that's right. that's always like the same. Uh, like that that's always the the question whenever you have these kind of just like massive you know massive consolidation right like you get that that sudden quick influx of cash but the cost is it it kind of mucks up the efficiency of the system so then over time uh it doesn't work as well yeah and, and you know there's also something too about i mean i don't i don't want to like you know wax nostalgic here or wax poetic but you know, like a sense of identity, right? Because mm-hmm. I mean, if like corporate farming really completely takes hold in Ukraine, um, you know, what what sort of identity do they are they going to have going forward? Now, I mean, you know, maybe you can say that you know identities are always sort of uh, fluid and they're always being created and recreated. But you know, I mean, it's sort of fascinating for me to think about like like the Iowa caucus for example, Mm -hmm. which, you know, shouldn't happen. It should be a primary and they shouldn't get to go first, but, you know, whatever. (laughs) Um, But like this idea of Iowa as, you know, this um, this, you know, Midwestern agricultural state. And I'm sure agriculture still produces a lot of money there. But I mean, how many like as a percentage of the population, how many Iowans work in agriculture? You know, like it, it, it can't right. be that many. Uh, and I think that that's probably true across most most states now. And I mean, I think that there's something to be said for when we, you know, like lose that identity, when we lose that individual or when we lose that like that rural 
I don't uh, camaraderie is like the the wrong word, but like the, like sense of community that you have that's built around those sort of you know individual farming enterprises. And I mean, and yeah, well, gone, I mean, again, it's really, it's the alienation aspect. Yeah, and and it, and it goes like so much more. You know, like it goes to keeping towns together. It goes to you know, like when you look at like what the rural suicide rate is. I mean, all of that goes to sort of the same thing, and. You know, we've like there was a process that played out in the United States over many decades, right? Like the moment that we've gotten to now, and you know, in Ukraine, like it, it might not take decades uh, mm -hmm. uh, if the moratorium is lifted and, and land sales are not done in a proper way. And you know, it's just it's one of those things where, you know, obviously, like I don't think I would want to be a peasant farmer, and you know, the right. world in terms of like <laughs> life expectancy and all those sorts of things is you know better better off when we don't all have to, you know, make sure that we can eke out a living. But I mean, at the same time, like, I, I think that there's some value in protecting that, like, especially mm -hmm. when we, you know, look at things like, you know, climate change, and um, all of those sorts of like, I know, there's nothing really else really, like when we look at something like climate change, I don't know if a corporate farm corporate, like, I don't know if a corporate farming operation is going to care too much about fertilizer like fertilizer use and pesticide and herbicide use and all of that i don't know how much they're going to care because mm -hmm. at the end of the day like they're thinking about their bottom line and but when it comes to a family farmer or a small holder and it's like i mean obviously there's there's communication some communication problems and some you know, problems you know cr crossing sort of these divides but i mean i think at the end of the day if you can say look like you know, we're, we're talking about not not only like preserving your like, you know, improving your yields, but we're also talking about preserving your farm for future generations. Right. Right. I mean, I think that there's so much more to be said for that than, you know, just some, you know, just like I said, some enterprise that, you know, only really cares about the bottom line and all this other stuff, too. Like when you read about these towns in Iowa that have pollution from these huge hog farms right like all the animal waste that gets in their drinking water and stuff and and it's like well of course you know not to like you know push the corporate screen too far but I mean, you know it's <laughs> well, just kind of obvious yeah. like if i'm an absentee landlord i don't really care well it's it's just generally like anytime you see any um any sort of resource extraction uh from from an area or from a community where the people that are benefiting from that resource extraction, they aren't, they don't have to deal with those effects, right? Like um, when you're talking about the pollution, I can't help but think of uh, pollution from coal slurries and, oh, yeah. and right? Like things like that, where the people that are benefiting from this, they, you know, they're not affected, their water is not contaminated by it, but the people that are, are the same ones that have to go, you know, work in, work in these mines. Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, and so, I mean, I think if we're going to, um, I mean, I think that we're kind of getting to the point where we're going to wrap this up. But I mean, if, if there's, I think, a takeaway from all of this, I mean, you know, it's one that, you know, this moratorium is deeply like the anxieties mm -hmm. about this moratorium and lifting it are deeply rooted in Ukrainian history. And, and that's not easy to overcome. I mean, the, the second is, you know, you're talking about um, maybe not like uh, a way of life that's, re you know, real in the sense that a lot of people live it anymore, but you're talking about, you know, culturally, 
historically a way of life in Ukraine that you know could disappear very rapidly um, following you know the end of land reform. Mm -hmm. And I mean, and I think third, you know, we're, we're this you know, idea of land reform touches on something that is uh, rising up all across the world in, in in global politics, which is you know how much local control should there be and and what does it mean in an increasingly globalized world a globalizing economy globalizing society to have local power right to have a local sense of identity uh, and i think that what the american example shows and two the same things are, are happening all across the world in rural areas it's that I mean, there is something to be said about a sense of community. Like, there is something to be said about smaller mm -hmm. agricultural production. Um, I mean, and there's a lot to be said about that. So, you know, as we, as we, as this goes forward in Ukraine, I mean, I think the question, then, you know, or one of the questions is, is Ukraine going to become like so many of these other places? And, you know, to be fair, like in some ways, it already is. Um, but, you know, what, what is, what is the future of a of rural way of life? I mean, in, right. in Ukraine, I think on some level it's still unanswered. Um, you know, here it's still unanswered as well, I think. Um, you know, despite uh, everything that's gone on, like despite the lock grip that the Republican Party has on a lot of rural societies or rural communities, I should say, at the same time, like on some level, like they're going to want all these inequalities and all these things that they see going on around them addressed and maybe it happens from the republicans maybe it happens from another party but i mean i do think that you are going to see some sort of pushback well um, right that is that is the uh i mean i think that's why you're starting to see that kind of um anti-corporate anti i mean almost even kind of anti-capitalism uh rhetoric coming from like tuck Olson. yeah yeah, I mean, I, like it's, I think it's that, definitely I mean, I a critique that... from the right. I mean, it's this is obviously not a um, a left or socialist project that they're interested in in, in working on by any means. But uh, the critique is definitely definitely there. And I mean, that, that's something that you know, those that are interested in uh, addressing these ways that are equitable to everyone should be very worried about. Yeah. And, and look to. Um... I was going to say, uh, oh wait, I, I'm sorry, I just lost my, I just lost my train of thought. Um, oh, I was going to say, like, well, you know, look at the resurgence of, you know, like the farmers market, right, in the United States. I mean, I think that that's, you know, I think that's something to keep an eye on as well. Is that, you know, maybe on some level it doesn't, it might not come from from, you know, rural communities themselves, but. Um, I do think that you're seeing the landscape changing and that, you know, people are more attuned to where their food comes from and, you know, and caring about, you know, things like that. Right. And so, again, like as we move forward, like, I don't, you know, I don't know what uh, what's in store for, you know, the rural way of life in you know, the in the United States and Ukraine anywhere. But I mean, I certainly think for those people that are concerned about it, like, you know, there there's still time. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's still time to fix these things. And there's, I think, still time to, you know, rebuild a sense of what was lost. Right. Like it's not too late to take. And this is true in many areas of life. But like it's not too late to take a step back from the centralization of, of power. Like it's not too late to take a step back from, you know, sort of the the.
flattening of um, of differences in, in a bad way, right? Like the flattening of communities, um, you know, like sort of getting rid of the patchwork, right? And, and replacing right. it with sort of this uniform, you know, process. Like it's not too late to stop those kind of things. And so going ahead, like, you know, Keep that in mind as you vote. Uh, Super Tuesday. Well, we're probably not going to pick this up by <laughs> Super Tuesday, by Tuesday, but I mean, <laughs> you know, we certainly have a presidential election coming up. Where, I mean, I know what Trump promises, and I know what you know he does with like the the farm aid and things like that. But um, I have a feeling that if he's reelected, um, the sort of concentration, the growth of corporate farming is only going to continue, uh, and it could very well continue under a Democrat as well. But I mean, that's, you know, that's a choice that people are going to be confronted with. And to sort of give people a preview of our next episode, too, because um, uh, mentioning a Democratic candidate, this reminded me of this, is I think for next episode, what we're going to talk about, unless something like crazy happens um, in the next well, week or so. Have you, Alex, have you seen any of, I, I mean, maybe this is where you're thinking of going, but have you kind of seen the... Um uh situation with uh turkey is kind of back oh, in the uh, back in the news yeah i have um i was so i'm aware of that and i mean we could potentially talk about that but i was sort of thinking um in light of like bernie sanders old comments about cuba and the sandinistas oh yeah uh, coming up and and these associations of him with sort of authoritarian communism, I think it would be good to talk about, um, like at least in the in the Russian Soviet context, you know how Soviet power originated, and you know was it just because they were Marxists? Because there's sort of a school of thought to give people a preview that you know in World War One, and when I think a lot mm -hmm. of historians look back at the at the you know, the long 20th century that, you know, World War One as opposed to World War Two is really the watershed moment, right? Mm -hmm. Like it really unleashes um, or is the culmination of so many forces that we're still that we're still dealing with. And anyway, like as part of that, you had so many countries centralize their economies, you engage in repressive tack, you know, like the tactics towards their population. Like you think about the United States and the Sedition Act, you know, that locked up Eugene right. Debs. And anyway, so there's this there's this notion or historical idea that, OK, well, these things happen in so many societies throughout World War One and World War One ended and they kind of took a step back uh, in Russia. They don't. Right. Because you have the mm -hmm. civil, you have the revolution, you have the civil war. And so it's this idea of, well, really, like Russia was radicalized. The Soviet state was radicalized. Just like all of these other states, uh, all these other countries were during World War One. It's just that the conflict for them never really ended. So it's not that they that they engaged in terror and you know confiscation of land and all these other sorts of things because of so they were socialists or communists, right? Right. It was because they were a product of their moment in time, like the historical space that they occupied, and so. Sort of my thesis is I don't think that you're we're going to see the nightmare scenario that a lot of Sanders detractors and even Warren's detractors <laughs> to some talk about because it's a completely different historical situation and a completely different historical context. 
but you know, it's never. I think it's nevertheless worth talking about because right. I and I mean, it's it, it, it's also like a completely different. I think that a completely different informed ideology too behind yeah. it. Well, but I mean, not but not just ideology, right? But that like the Soviets. I mean, like sort of what we're going to be talking about it. The Soviet state is not just the product of Marxist and Leninist ideology. Right, it's right. also a product of this fulcrum of war and revolution and foreign intervention. And you know, on some level, certainly, like certainly, those yeah. are all factors in creating the state that was born, you know, out of it. And so, um, I think that would be a worthwhile you know, topic, and then we can return to what's going on with, um, you know, Russia and Turkey, um, maybe the week after that. Yeah. All right. Well, that sounds, sounds interesting. Look forward to it. Uh, thank you so much for, for tolerating our <laughs> inconsistent schedule. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm, um, just, it's tax season. So I'm, <laughs> I'm swamped. <laughs> it's tax season. Alex is busy with work. I've been, uh, been doing some traveling. Um, and, so hopefully, I think next weekend we should be able to get get another another one uh, another one in the bank. If not, uh, we'll see you when we see you. <laughs> okay, sounds great. All and right. again, as always, like we appreciate you tuning in. We appreciate you spreading the word. Uh, you know, and and always feel free to leave us comments. Um, to you know, like or. I guess you can't. I don't know if you can dislike, but yeah, to rate, you know, like, subscribe. We appreciate all. Only of that, five star so. reviews. That's it. No, nothing, nothing else. No, we don't <laughs> want. We don't want any any bad reviews. <laughs> okay. No. All right. Bye. Okay, we'll see you next time.